Good afternoon, and welcome to Leveraging AI's Low-Hanging Fruit to Help Your Organization Survive the Downturn, a Health System CIO Media Inc. production sponsored by Red Hat and Carasoft. Just a little housekeeping before we get started. My name is Anthony Guerra. I'm the Editor-in-Chief of Health System CIO, and I'll be your moderator today. We're looking forward to your questions and comments. You can send those in in the Q&A box, and we'll take them later in the program. Just so you see how we're going to spend our time today, first, we're going to go about 35, 40 minutes with our main panel featuring Dr. Zafar Chaudhry, SVP, Chief Digital and Information Officer with Seattle Children's, Dr. John Halamka, President of the Mayo Clinic Platform, and Mark Mangus, Principal Specialist Solution Architect for Global Healthcare with Red Hat. And then we will have our Q&A. So let's jump right in. Uh, I think this is going to be a fun conversation. Um, Dr. Chaudhry, let's start with you. Can you give us an overview of your organization and your role? Thanks for having me. Yes, I'm at Seattle Children's. Seattle Children's is a pediatric health system based in the Pacific Northwest. 46 sites across Washington, Alaska, Montana, and Idaho. Um, so we have a very, very large catchment area. Uh, and within that, I have an IT team of about 500 people supporting our clinicians. Very good, thank you. Dr. Holanka. Yes, hi, well, great to see everybody. And so John Holanka, president of Mayo Clinic Platform. I joined Mayo Clinic in January of 2020 with the notion if we're going to do ML ops from data gathering to ongoing monitoring and ensure ethics, fairness and usability, we have to start to think of collaboration at very high scale. So I'm responsible globally for all of Mayo's partnerships collaborations, and digital health innovations. So it uh, should be a great discussion today. Thank you. Mark. Thank you, Anthony. Yes, I work for Red Hat, as you know. Um, we uh, help our healthcare customers and actually across industries uh, implement you know, practical solutions around AI and other technologies uh, across clouds. No matter where they want to run it, they can run it with us. Um, I've got about 30 years of healthcare IT experience, uh, early adopter of AI technologies and virtualization technologies. Uh, I've written a book on virtualization. And uh, I get to see a lot of the practical attempts out there in the industry of, of when they go right and when they go wrong. So hopefully I'll be able to bring some of that to the discussion. Absolutely. Looking forward to that. All right. So what we're going to do here is we got some premises. Um, that we're basing sort of the concept of this webinar on. I want to test those premises um, and see what folks think about what's really going on on the ground, so to speak. Um, uh, there, We're in tough times and headcounts are tight. Um, you won't be able to hire more people right now for the foreseeable future to throw at problems in clinical or IT. And in fact, you may have, you may lose people. So uh, still there's much work to do, if not more, um, with less folks or the same amount. Is that the case? And how would you describe the mood and expectations that the organization has from IT? What are the expectations they have of you? Uh, Dr. Chaudhry? Yeah, I mean, certainly throughout the healthcare industry, it's not something new, right? Everybody wants technology departments to do more for less. And we at Children's are not immune from that. And yes, certainly we've seen a bit of an economic downturn in terms of revenue and profitability over the last three to four months. So yeah, people are asking our department to do more for less, don't hire more people, reduce the number of contractors you have. And so we've been looking at different solutions as to how you would do that. Administrative tasks, certainly you can automate, whether you're using robotic process automation or some forms of bot or AI to do that. And we have attempted to do that. I think for us, though, we've also looked in parallel at what are our processes in our department and helped others across the health system uh, look at those processes as well, because fundamentally technology is great, but there are lots of inefficiencies as well in how things are done uh, in different parts of the health system. So that's that's also important to me. But yeah, we've got some tools to automate. We've tried to fill the open positions with some tools versus eliminating roles by using tools as, as a philosophy here at Children's. So trying to fill open positions with tools. 
Okay, we'll get into that a little more. Uh, Dr. Halamka, your thoughts? Well, certainly I agree with Dr. Chowdhury's remarks, but I have 73 hospitals that report to me. And if I go to the CEO of a hospital in February of 2023 and say, you know what you need is you need more innovation, more digital transformation, or more automation. You know what they say? My margins are negative. My staff is retiring. My supply chain is broken and everyone is burned out. So I say, what if I could take those key business problems that you have of staff shortages or supply chain disruption or burnout and bring you a solution? Oh, by the way, the solution is based on IT or AI. Oh, hey, that, that's what I want. So, so the way I have focused on this problem is trying to meet those in the trenches with business solutions that solve the immediate problems in the economic headwinds of 2023. All right, very good. We'll get more into that. Mark, your thoughts? Yeah, so as a technology company, you would be surprised how much time we spend talking about things other than technology, people, process. Uh, doing more with less sometimes means reimagining or reinventing yourself. Right, you can't just keep doing the same thing and expecting innovation or efficiency to just happen uh, because it's not going to. So when we run into customers that have these skill shortages, that's really what it is. Is it's it could be a people shortage, but more often it's a skill shortage. Um, you know, as, as Dr. Holopka mentioned, you know, people retiring. That's a big problem in healthcare. Um, all the knowledge is going out the door with the retirees. So what do you do about that? Um, and there's a number of different approaches uh, that we take, but I don't want to take up all the time, but just to suffice it to say that uh, a lot of these uh, issues are really people issues or socio-technical issues. And that's really what we try to focus on, uh, on finding solutions for. All right. Very good. We're going to we'll get deeper on everything here. Um, Dr. Halamka, we're going to start with you. When it comes to relieving workers from repetitive tasks, things like AI, automation, and machine learning always come up. First, let's discuss any important differences between these three, and then let's address where you think each can play a role today. I think of AI as not artificial intelligence, but augmented intelligence. And Anthony, you and I have known each other for a long time. So I went to medical school in the 1980s. A few things have changed since then. <laughs> in just my area of emergency medicine and toxicology, there are 800 papers published every day. And I can't possibly keep up with the literature. So as I'm presented with a new case or a new problem to solve, what I want is to say, can I use a automation tool they will say, well, you know, we've looked at 10 million patients like the ones in front of you, and the diagnoses to consider are these five. Or for a million patients like the one in front of you, their care journey looked like this. Oh, and there was a pothole along the way you might want to avoid. So I look at where we are today is we are getting better tools, more access to de-identified privacy-preserved data, and a set of guardrails and guidance to make sure that these tools we're using are ethical and unbiased so that humans can make better decisions and see more patients in more geographies than ever before. And really that's gonna be uh, addressing a number of the business challenges I highlighted at the beginning. Very good, Dr. Chaudhry, do you, do you think these definitions are important? I mean, when, you, when you're talking to users and, and potential internal customers, um, they maybe uh, are using terms incorrectly about what they think they want or what they think they can use? Yeah, I do think that certainly when you talk to people on the ground, there is some confusion as to exactly what each piece is. I mean, you know, when you look at robotic process automation, geez, I mean, I'm pretty old. It used to be screen scrape technology many years ago, right? It's not like it's revolutionary. It's just slightly different and gauged in a different way. So I think... I agree with Dr. Halamka. Yeah, absolutely. Tools can allow you to churn through lots of information and provide advice and guidance. We will. We don't build any tools here without the clinical input, for sure. I mean, that's that's the customer, that's the stakeholder. Uh, but it, we have different use cases. So we've sort of 
focused more on, you know, in IT tickets that we were doing manually, can we close those in an automated fashion using some form of bot that we've created versus uh, automation of billing and claims versus using some of the algorithms to do better analytics. We have a huge focus here on equity, diversity, and inclusion, and we have used some of those tools with the data scientists we have to automate and provide guidance, uh, used it to, to build opioid-free tonsillectomy, for example. So we've got different use cases, and obviously we're nowhere near as large as the operation that Dr. Halamka has. Uh, but there are some good use cases and value, but at the same time, I tend to find you have to explain all of this at more of an eighth grade level to people versus using really big technical terms that people don't understand. So we've sort of tried to find that balance. Mark, your thoughts? Yeah, just to, to pick up on that theme uh, Dr. Chaudhry brought up, I think that's very, very apropos, and it's something that we see too. It's kind of what I call pragmatic AI, and that is really focusing on two things, toil, driving toil out of the system, right? We know machines are really good at some things and humans are really good at other things. One thing that machines are really good at is repetitive tasks. So a lot of time the low hanging fruit are driving the toil out of whatever automated system that you're, you're looking at. But where it gets a little dicey or a little less clear is when the, the AI becomes part of, let's say part of a care team where it's advising you know clinicians about uh, how to best serve the patient, kind of what Dr. Hlomka was talking about. Um, there are some great use cases there and people have done a lot of great work there, but I think um, sometimes it's not low hanging fruit to attack that first. Sometimes you'll get a lot more bang for your buck uh, trying to figure out how do I shore up uh, you know, the automation around some of these repetitive tasks, because frankly, I'm paying people to do those things. And people is at a premium right now. So one of the one of the ways that I can really attack that is drive the toil out of the system. Very good. All right. Next question, uh, Dr. Chowdhury, we're going to start with you. Uh, what are some keys to implementing AI ML technologies? We've all had to deal with poorly functioning chatbots. So what can be done to avoid such situations? Well, I think it's the old case of who are you actually involving in building out that technology, right? At the end of the day, we don't use chatbots uh, facing our external or internal customers. We don't simply because we asked our patient population and we asked our clinical population and they were not very keen on doing that. And so stakeholder engagement is important. Where we have built, we have built in collaboration. Uh, with individuals and teams. Uh, of course, in IT, it's quite interesting, right? If you have a varied IT team, many of the IT team are resistant to automation. I've found that in my team. Um, so when we automated our tickets around analytics, for instance, setting up servers, things like that, really basic stuff, there was a level of resistance from the internal teams as to, well, what does that mean for my job? Mm. Am I losing my job? Are you working me out of something? And so, whereas I would have thought that technologists would tend to embrace new innovation, uh, it's really become a hard sell to say, well, actually, you could do something more important than just building X or building Y or closing a ticket or resetting someone's password. But actually, I've seen a lot of resistance in that space. And interesting enough, talking to clinicians, certainly in our health system, uh, can I automate some of the work for you when you call us and they're like well actually we like talking to people mm -hmm. i like bob and bob does good work for me so that's been a really interesting challenge and we did try some of the early chatbots and you know i think the level of frustration that everybody's had is they weren't very good at answering questions right and so it's, it's that rubbish in rubbish out scenario so it's an interesting balance and, and then of course the other challenge we've had as a health system is the level investment in innovation nowhere near matches some of the larger health systems. So I've always had to find the balance between how much I can spend on new tools versus how much we still have to do manually. Very good. Lots there. Dr. Halamka, your thoughts? 
Sure. So, uh, and the, uh, you know, because you followed some of the work we've done over these last couple of years that good AI and ML starts with highly curated data. And I describe data as having depth, which is the number of modalities, structured and unstructured, telemetry, images, omics, and the like. Breadth being the number of patients and spread being the heterogeneity. I mean, not sufficient to have 10 million patients in Minnesota, Arizona, and Florida if you're planning to run your algorithm in Georgia or Kentucky. And so what we've tried to do is to say, how do we create a very large and detailed corpus of data, but then also create the both technological approaches and policy approaches to bring on others in a virtuous distributed data network? We signed Mercy Help. 15 million patients in Arkansas and Missouri and Oklahoma. We have a number of international colleagues. The end result will be in 2023, we'll have 100 million de-identified, very deep uh, with great spread records to develop various ML approaches and validate those ML approaches. So that when we give them to a clinician in workflow, there is a pleasing result. Right, what it recommends sounds pretty, you know, consistent with what I'd expect for the patient in front of me right now. So I think the key here is make sure you develop with great data, have great transparency about where it works and where it doesn't work, and bring something of value to the user, and then they'll adopt it. In the workflow, right? Oh, it must be in the workflow. If you say, oh, just download a new app on your phone, break your workflow, go to the new app, you'll love it. Not going to happen. Not going to happen. Very good. Mark, your thoughts? Yeah, I see this kind of breaking down in two areas in terms of how to avoid, you know, poorly functioning uh, ML. One is is kind of the consumer or patient-centered area. The other is uh, is don't avoid the details on the infrastructure side, right? So on the, the first one, which I think is vastly more important, is we've all seen the horror stories of, you know, car crashes and, and recognition algorithms that don't recognize non-white people's faces and things like that. So I think where, where sometimes the technologists lose the thread, so to speak, is they're not putting the outcome first. They're not saying, who am I actually trying to serve? What value am I delivering to those that I do serve? And how is it really making their life better? And it's just that simple. It's not, it's not anything to do with technology. It's, it's, it's really how am I setting up myself for success, my team for success, and, and who am I serving? The other part about the infrastructure, I see this time and again where um, we get companies that may have part, you know, large company, part of the company is really wants to be innovative and they run off and do their own thing. And they may succeed and do something really unique and innovative, but then they turn around and look at the IT department and say, look what I did. And the IT department says, so what? I can't put that in production. What, what did you do? What are all these parts and pieces that you're expecting me to support now? So that's kind of where Red Hat comes in is, is pulling together all the pieces to make these innovative projects run anywhere. Uh, whether it's on-prem where a lot of your healthcare data is, or whether it's on Google Cloud or one of the other cloud providers, which we partner with, uh, it's really making it making it a kind of a pervasive uh, platform operating model where you can take this stuff and run it anywhere you need to. All right, very good. All right, we're going to stick with you, Mark, on this one. What kind of infrastructure, which you just mentioned, do you need mm-hmm. to have in place? in order to run AI ML solutions? And what are the effects of implementing these technologies on the wrong infrastructure? Why well, we see this a lot, as you can imagine. Um, and this is frankly why Red Hat partners so closely with the hyperscalers, you know, like Google and, and others. Uh, they all have unique uh, properties that they're really good at. Google's really good at AI. Um, you know, Amazon's good at, at other things. Azure's good at other things. So. Why should you have to choose? Why can't you use best of breed, right? All the plumbing that it takes to actually stand up a production grade AI ML solution often gets overlooked. You know, everything, everybody looks at the shiny thing, which is the algorithm, but what about getting access to your data? What about integrating with disparate data sources? What about securing it? What about managing the performance of it, monitoring it? Um, All of these things, if you're, 
not careful, have to be stitched together by hand and can be a, a huge burden on IT, right? Whereas if you take this kind of platform operating model approach uh, that we espouse is all of that stuff is kind of ubiquitous and provided for you so that you can focus on the business critical part and the algorithm part, which is really uh, the differentiating thing that you're trying to do or the innovative thing you're trying to do. So we see this, especially with early adopters that rush to the cloud to implement some AI ML algorithm. And then they, they take a step back after a year or so and they go, yeah, this looks great, but how do we put it into production? Or how do we, how do we point it at all of our data, not just the, the training data, that kind of thing. Very good, Dr. Halamka, your thoughts. So my notion is creating scale is really important. If we're going to train these models, and of course all the news is on large language models, they're only as good as the uh, data that you train them with. And so just as you've heard, I try to be cloud neutral, right? Because every one of those cloud providers does have its own strengths. I sometimes describe it and, and you know, the others may disagree with me that Google is great at greenfield innovation of creating something that has never been run before. Microsoft is very good at running things that have existed in the past in a more secure environment. And you know, Amazon provides some pretty good tools and utilities. So each of them is different. And so I agree, embrace the cloud, create very large scale, de-identified secure data sets, create processes that make collaboration easy. Mayo Clinic has now over 150 collaborators doing ML development and doing so in secure cloud environments. And it's only by creating this ecosystem, this community that we can innovate to meet the needs of our patients. Very good, Dr. Chaudhry, your thoughts? Completely agree on the multi-cloud strategy approach. I would also add that Health systems have to have, uh, well, have to have total sight of their data sources. They have to have clean data sources, and not everybody is in that boat. And most importantly, it's still a change program, and your own teams need to have those skills. Because uh, what I've sort of seen in my team is we've moved to to multi cloud strategies, and our analytics is being moved to GCP. But what I've learned is that my teams don't necessarily understand the cloud or don't have the skill set so don't forget if you're going down this path to either provide the training for your teams or hire in the right talent who will understand and embrace more than someone who spent their life doing server engineering and doesn't really embrace that cloud so i've certainly seen that uh, as part of that and totally agree on the fact that yeah of course if you train the models with the right amount of data it's going to be great and more collaboration would be really good. Obviously, we don't have a mountain of data, but if we combined it with all pediatric facilities, and that would be a mountain of data that you could train uh, an AI with, and that's really important. So I totally agree on those pieces. Very good. We we touched on this before, but Dr. Halamka, let's start with you. How can the internal political side of this be best handled? For example, I think um, Dr. Chaudhry uh, referenced this um, people having sort of their jobs automated away or being concerned that it's all. So you start with a little piece and they get that nervous feeling that, you know, you come in trying to make it a positive, oh, look, you don't have to do this repetitive, boring thing anymore. And they're like, well, what, what are you going to take from me next? So is that a dynamic that we see that can take hold and how do we avoid it? Sure. So why don't I start with a high level statement then reflect on change management. High level statement is, Will AI replace your clinician, doctor, nurse, social worker? No. Will doctors, nurses, and social workers who use AI replace those who don't? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so from a change management perspective, we generally follow the approach of John Cotter, right? Harvard Business School guy said, oh, we'll have a vision. Oh, vision is clinician, I'll empower you to see twice as many patients and twice as many geographies with twice the safety and quality 
and you will be a, a really great performer because of it. Oh, okay, that's the vision. Sounds good. Guiding coalition, urgency to change, uh, a sense that we are going to all work together so that there's a team supporting you in all this. And suddenly, the, a lot of the barriers to looking at this new improvement, this new innovation melt away because you've aligned incentives and created a community in support of it. Dr. Chaudhry, um, maybe it's the more the folks that you mentioned, not the doctors, nurses, and uh, other sort of higher licensed folks. Uh, maybe it's the other folks uh, that are more concerned about their jobs going away. Is that what do you think about that? I think you know all the automation that we talk about, new technologies generates fear, right? It's a, just a human reaction to things. People want to know what does my life look like after the fact and what's in it for me, right? And so having a transparent model of saying, well, actually, there are some roles that you will automate out and no longer be needed. You, you know, you shouldn't lie about that. You have to be clear about it. You also have to show those, let's say, administrative staff that can be heavily affected as to what the future looks like for them. Can they be retrained in other positions? Can they be upskilled? Can, can they move to other parts of the health system? So if you take that approach, I totally agree with Dr. Halamka, right? You've got to show people where they can potentially go. That then eliminates that fear factor, which then promotes more collaborative working. I think sometimes we tend to implement things and not necessarily show people the way. And I've also to seen that on the clinical side, right? It's like putting in any new project. If you don't show the, the nurse, the allied health professional, the physician, what their life will look like once you give them a device or something new to play with, then they're not necessarily going to embrace that. And so that's the approach we've tried to take is show people, because we've worked more on the non-clinical side for automation, this is what it will look like when you are in this new world order of what we're trying to do in, th in terms of things. And yeah, you lose some people, some people buy into the journey, but many are excited about the upskills and the changes in the way in which they do their job, right? And ultimately, I'm not sure everybody wants to do the same function for the next 29 years in the health system. There's opportunity for them to learn and do things differently. Well, I, I mean, that's and that's a great point, just keeping in mind at the individual level, give them a vision of what their future could be if you're doing things that are removing parts of their job that they're, you, you, they're used to doing. You mentioned the idea of upskilling um, your infrastructure people to deal with cloud, right? That's where we need to go. And this is what I, I need you to be doing. This is what you could be doing. Uh, and you hope that you're getting um, a positive reaction to that and not just, well, I've done this for 30 years. I'm not about to learn something new. And then that's maybe someone who's needs to be on a path to retirement, right? I mean, you yeah, just... it can be mixed. The reaction can be mixed. Um, you know, technically speaking, it's more of a relationship management job for those type of individuals than it is actually doing, mm -hmm. right? You're not technically having to touch anything anymore because it's managed by someone else and provided by someone else. But then you can learn the new art of communication. Now, unfortunately, most folks in IT are, IT are introverted and really afraid of, oh my God, I'm actually gonna have to talk to some people. <laughs> that that does, that's the typical change I've seen. So you're right. I mean, I think some people will retire out of the system. Some people will embrace it. It's really great if you bring new people into the team from sort of the Gen Z era, they're really all excited about consumption versus build. And um, that helps. That certainly helps the older members of the team sort of see a different way of working. Um, so you have to try a multi-pronged approach. Mark, your thoughts? Yeah, I think this really comes down to embracing a learning culture. And I'm thinking about it while uh, Dr. Shah is talking and all the different projects that I see uh, in payers, providers, health plans, the ones that are the most successful are where there's either a culture, even a, even for just the project, not the whole company, where there's a there's a culture of rewarding learning. And whether you're a you know 30 year employee or you're a Gen Z employee and you're just kind of getting your feet under you, um, if if the 
if the company is rewarding uh, you learning new skills and upskilling, then it's going to make not only you more successful, but the company more successful, whether it's AI or something else, right? And I just, it's such a critical component component of any successful project. Very good. All right. Uh, next question. Dr. Chaudhry, we're going to start with you. What are some areas that AI ML aren't quite ready for prime time and why? Well, I'll, I'll still go back to Dr. Halamka's comments around, I don't think AI is going to replace clinicians anytime soon. I think it's just going to be an advisory capacity and maybe aggregating data and presenting it in different formats for better decision making. Um, I don't think, obviously, we're having this current chat GPT craze, and I've seen it in my own organization with certainly my informatics physicians getting all excited about, hey, we can use chat GPT to do. But at the end of the day, do you really want to write an essay or do you want to do what do you really want to do with this particular tool? And I think that's not totally ready for healthcare prime time. I think it will need a lot more data uh, to move forward. Um, so I'm not seeing a, a world in the next six to 12 months where my healthcare organization will be running clinics through AI, you know, intelligent AI based on products like ChatGPT. I don't see that. Dr. Halamka. So you recognize that William Gibson was right, right? The future is already here. It's just unevenly distributed. And so you're going to look domain by domain where AI is good enough and where it's not. So where is it good enough? Uh, in cardiology, we have taken millions of 12 lead ECGs and created models, 14 of them, that with reasonable sensitivity and specificity can look at any new signal, whether that's coming from your Apple Watch or an Alive Core device or something else in your home or that you wear, and help with diagnosis or forecasting of disease. So, oh, the field of cardiology, pretty good. We're really early with doing what I'll call voice-based diagnosis of neuromuscular disorders. So what do we do? We took 10,000 voice recordings and we're training a model to diagnose Parkinsonism based on how you speak. Not what you say, but tone and timber and amplitude and that sort of thing. Okay, so maybe that's a year or two away. I mean, it's not far-fetched to think that in two, three years, you'll be able to go to your device in the home and say, hey Siri, I'm a little worried about my speech and have Siri come back and say, well, Mayo Clinic believes there's a more than 50% chance that you need an evaluation. So we're gonna schedule an appointment for you. It's not doing diagnosis, but it's doing triage and that kind of thing. And, and so that's coming. Well then, oh, what about omics and exposomes? I mean, this gets to again, be a little bit future looking because we don't have, I mean, Mayo has a million genomes but we have 10 million patients, right? So we don't quite yet have the data uh, comprehensively to look at phenotype and genotype and build models. Maybe that's three years away. And then exposome, you know, what do you eat? And are you willing to share with us your shopping cart on Instacart or from Kroger? So we can actually look at who you are, your probability of disease, and then the things around you, how you live, how you eat, what your activity is. Oh, well, that's again, couple more years away. So all of this a little bit depends upon the data for training and our confidence that these models can be fair and biased and be useful. So let's just approach it one step at a time based on the domain where we're likely to have early success. Makes sense, Mark. Yeah, I, I totally agree. In, in fact, what I'm seeing is a lot of, uh, in, in especially clinical use cases, a lot of focus on pattern recognition. This is an area where AIML is really good, right? If you tell it, uh, go look for this pattern in you know a million different uh, X-rays, and tell me the likelihood that a given X-ray has uh, COVID nineteen, um, it'll it'll give you a percentage, and it's pretty good. Um, so in areas where, you know, radiology is a good example where there's uh, a huge overload of work 
and not enough radiologists, and especially in you know busy metropolitan ERs and things like that, these are areas where AIML is really good, where, where it falls down. And it's not really failing, it's just not ready, um, is where you try to extrapolate uh, out of an area where it's been trained, right? So that's what the, the general population doesn't really understand, right? Is the sci-fi aspect of AIML with uh, Skynet and Terminator and that kind of stuff. That's general AI, that's general intelligence, that's a long way away. And there's there's no way that that's going to be coming and taking people's jobs. The mode we're in now is kind of uh, like Dr. Halamka said on a domain by domain basis. We're looking at you know use cases where we can really move the needle or make a big difference. Uh, that's what people should be focused on. All right, now uh, Dr. Halamka, you've talked about this uh, often on the different events we've done together. Uh, what's your latest thinking about these concerns around biases and in, in algorithms? Sure. And, and so remember, there is, as you just heard, general intelligence isn't there yet. <laughs> so what does that mean? There is no algorithm that is going to serve everyone for every purpose equally well. Now, I'm going to give you a real example. So there is an algorithm very well known in uh, it's a commercial cardiology algorithm that works exceedingly well for patients with a body mass index less than 31 to predict future cardiac disease. It works really, really badly for patients with a body mass index greater than 35. Now, does that mean it is unethical to use this algorithm? Well, if the patient has a body mass index that is less than 31, it's pretty good. <laughs> you just don't use it in patients with a body mass index over 35. So I think what we're going to see, and this, you know, because Anthony and I, and I have chatted about this, is a little bit of a vision. So imagine all of us, you know, Seattle Children's and Mayo and Hopkins and Duke and Stanford and all the rest, we all produce amazing algorithms but every one of them will have a different performance characteristic where it will work well and not work well. We need a nationwide registry that will have the metadata around the algorithms we produce so that what we hope is in workflow, just as you said, automatically, I know it's not a real world, <laughs> but that, that you will be in your EHR or other workflow tool and the algorithm most likely to help you is then brought down and executed against your data with the understanding that it may be biased for some, but it's not biased for you because <laughs> you're pretty similar to the training set and what the assurance lab said would be utility for this algorithm. What's most important in all of this work is transparency. And that is to say, and Anthony's heard me say this before, on every soup can you find at the market, it tells you how much fat how much sodium, how many calories, you decide if you like that soup or not like that soup. If you get an algorithm off the shelf, you have not a clue <laughs> how it was developed or whether it performs badly for a patient like the one in front of you. So let's understand, we're never gonna get perfection, but we will be able to bring the right algorithm to the right patient at the right time if we have the infrastructure for transparency. Dr. Halamko, are algorithms currently being studied and researched the same way a vaccine would be? Double-blind studies in, in order to get the, the data you mentioned, which is under 31, over 35? Is that how they're getting that information? Oh, absolutely. So Mayo Clinic, let me give you a case example. We took 10 million ECGs. We trained a cardiology algorithm. And then we asked the question, could we use Apple Watch data? to diagnose low ejection fraction. That is tell you that you had a weak heart pump. So we did, as you exactly said, we ran a randomized clinical trial and we established a cohort and a matched group. And then we brought people into the trial and then we asked, is this efficacious or not efficacious? And the end result is, I'll tell you in the field, we got an AUC of 0.92, right? It is, it's sensitivity, it's specificity, We're pretty good in a randomized clinical trial on testing the algorithm for utility. Dr. Chaudhry, what are your thoughts around uh, 
Uh, these kind of biases, uh, is this something that concerns you? I think Dr. Halamka is right, right? You have to understand the algorithm and what the parameters of the algorithm are. But I really do like that idea of having a registry. Uh, that sounds like a really good idea. I think the other thing I've seen certainly in my health system is in combination with building algorithms, there's still a lack of understanding of the data as well, right? So, you know, of course, you show a clinician something red and they'll be like, no, your data's wrong. So we we have to still <laughs> also do work that educates and enlightens people on the data sources, what that data truly means. And the the test for IT is, where were you actually pulling that data in the first place, right? Because you can run an algorithm on anything, but if, you, if your data sources are corrupted or not totally complete or doesn't pull from every system clinically that you have in your, in your personal system, then you may miss something, right? And I suppose I have a question for Dr. Halamka then. Do you think algorithms will become regulated in the future? Well, so as folks know, the FDA, this is Ani Saha, who's uh, replaced Bakul Patel, has created a lovely software as a medical device decision tree to decide what algorithms should be regulated and what not. And a lot of it has to do with what I'll call risk analysis. So if I tell Anthony, you know, Anthony, eat more vegetables run a little more than you are today. Well, I think the risk of that's pretty low. <laughs> if I say, Anthony, have I got an algorithm that's gonna, it's gonna look at your facial color on Zoom and predict your stomach cancer probability. Oh my God, that's a pretty high risk algorithm. So what Annie has done at FDA is to say, you know, what telemetry are you gathering? Is it used for diagnosis? Is it used for treatment? What's the risk of it being wrong and that kind of thing? So, yeah, we'll stratify our algorithms into unregulated clinical decision support, regulated decision support, all based on risk. There's got to be more than just regulation, though, and that is sub-regulatory guidance on what I call guardrails and guidelines for the safe use of AI. And so that's where this group, this Coalition for Health AI that I co-lead, it's all free, it's all open source, anyone can join. You'll find it at coalitionforhealthai.org. It has brought together 150 organizations to publish the guidance <laughs> that is more generally best practice than this regulation. We'll need both FDA and a code of conduct for our community. Very good, Mark. Do you have any thoughts on, on that? Yep, you're on. There we go. Got it. Turning to the community is is kind of in Red Hat's DNA, right? We, the inventors of commercial open source software 30 years ago. Um, so I think the the answer to this really has to be with the community. You know, it's it's how do we it, then it becomes a question of how do we set up a community where, uh, for example, what I'm thinking of is a project we did with Boston Children's Hospital where they had a fancy term for it is a federated learning model where they had different hospitals participating in this coalition or group uh, around pediatric brain scan images so that they could all get smarter uh, with their AI, but they didn't necessarily want to share their algorithms. They wanted to share the metadata, they wanted to standardize on the data set, uh, but they still wanted to maintain their competitive advantage. As long as we're in a for-profit healthcare environment, that kind of thing is going to be important. To, to companies to do. Nevertheless, what they showed is that it is possible to, you know, the rising tide raising all boats, we can all learn together and we can all be part of a community and we can all make each other better. Um, and this also applies to that transparency thing we were talking about before. Uh, that absolutely has to be part of it. And, I, and I, I see it's kind of the wild west out there right now from a solution perspective in terms of providers of transparent AI platforms and that kind of thing, but it's coming. And I see a lot of uh, opportunity for collaboration uh, around standards for transparent AI. Um, so I think it's, you know, on that front, stay tuned, but I do think the, the answer to all this has to be in the community. 
Very good. Mark, do you have a question for one or both of your co-panelists? Uh, yes, for Dr. Chaudhry, uh, you obviously have a lot of uh, hard-won practical experience in, in implementing uh, AI in your organization. I'm wondering um, how you approach the, uh, the people issue in terms of, uh, you know, upskilling or uh, contracting, or how do you, you kind of close the gaps when you're trying to implement a project and you don't have the skills for it? Um, certainly starting from the perspective of, uh, I always say to people working in healthcare IT, 20% of the job is sales. So, you know, if, if you, if you can sell something to someone, that's where you start. So you have to do a lot of communication. It does baffle me in healthcare where you can send out a hundred messages and realize that only one was read. <laughs> and so there's a lot of work to be done in publicizing any new initiative you have and then figuring out who are the people that are going to be impacted by that initiative. And in many cases, it may be my internal team, but also in most cases, it's impacting clinical staff, but also the patients, parents, and caregivers at some point as well, right? Because we're using tools to, to automate in that field as well. So it's, it, communication is important. Showing, we like to do things here based on persona, so we like to show people the before persona versus what your life would be after that fact, after that change. Um, we're a pediatric hospital, so we like to use cartoons to do that. And that kind of works quite well with people. People resonate uh, with that. So those are some of the approaches we take. Um, training is an issue. Upskilling is an issue based on whichever health system you are and what their funding levels look like. I do not believe... Certainly, my organization doesn't invest enough in training uh, technologists. That's always been a challenge because budgets are always a challenge, right? And sometimes we find, certainly because we're in Seattle, that we lose good people. They get training on the flip side, and then they come back to us later because they still want to be working in a mission-based organization. So I guess I have to thank some of the tech vendors here who train people for me and then send them back to me. That's how sometimes I consume uh, upskilling. Very good. Dr. Halamka, do you have a question for one or both of your co-panelists? So here's the interesting question for us all, which is, okay, we've created a curated large corpus of multimodal data, global in scale, produced amazing algorithms, created transparency and labeling. How do we actually get them used in workflow? It's the unsolved last mile problem, right? No clinician is going to say, oh, well, here, let me interrupt my workflow and go download an algorithm. Oh, the algorithm says this or that. Here, let's have a discussion. We, all of us, still need to work together on the deployment and adoption of these things. And I, I welcome wisdom of the crowd. All right, Dr. Chaudhry, let's start with you. That's the age-old question, right? How do you convince clinicians to adopt anything? Some will, some won't. I have seen some changes with some of the new generation docs that are joining the teams. You know, they sort of grew up in that digital space. But I think certainly what I've seen in my career is you do have to invest heavily in change programs and bringing in people who really know how to manage and deliver that change. And unfortunately, that still lacks, certainly in my organization and others I've worked in, we're not investing enough in that piece or bringing in the skills to help us with that. Many projects we do in IT, we end up having to own some of that change and it doesn't go well at times because we're not necessarily trained or geared to do that. But completely agree. That has always been, I still scratch my head over it, but I have had success with good change, well-trained change people, but they are not cheap to bring in. Mark? And so I have an image respond ahead. to that there quickly by saying, in my experience as a CIO for 25 years and now running a variety of administrative tasks, if you can pay them more, improve the quality of practice life, or help them avoid public embarrassment, like poor quality scores or malpractice assertions, you can get change. So I, what you said is exactly right. I think all of us need to work on this adoption issue, aligning incentives. Mark, any thoughts on uh, 
adoption workflow, getting it in the workflow, these kind of things? Yeah, absolutely. The, I think the, the, the last thing you said, Dr. Lumpka, was kind of the mic drop, and that's incentive alignment, right? That You have to have that. That's table stakes. Um, and I don't have a silver bullet, but I have seen some things that are effective. Um, and it usually comes down to some version of involving all the stakeholders that are part of the problem in being part of the solution. So focusing on outcomes, getting clinicians involved early and often so that you have uh, a cross-functional team that's really uh, not just overseeing, but actually is part of the adoption process. Um, and, uh, you know, in, in, in uh, Project Lingo, we call that value streams, focusing on value streams. What am I delivering and who am I delivering it to? And to Dr. Chaudhry's point, how am I changing that person's life? But really building that into the DNA of the project so that when you're delivering uh, something, everybody knows what it is and everybody's expectations are aligned. So there aren't any surprises, right? You're, you're going toward uh, you're taking that hill in the war and you're going toward that horizon and everybody knows where you're going. And when you get there, everybody knows when you got there. Um, and I've seen clinicians and, you know, uh, of all types participate and, and be quite successful when they follow that kind of philosophy. Well, well just a quick comment on that, Anthony, which is as a 61 year old person, I carry, I care a lot about colonoscopy accuracy. Do you know the average well-trained human will miss 20% of the lesions in a colonoscopy, but a human combined with an algorithm will only miss 3%. So my assertion, slightly controversial, is in five years, it will be malpractice to do a colonoscopy without AI. Mm -hmm. Well, I had mine a few weeks ago and I don't think he was using any AI. So maybe I should go back. Actually, I'm not going back anytime soon. I'll tell you that much. Um, gentlemen, that was the fantastic webinar. Talk about mic drop moments. Uh, regarding continuing education, you can use the final slide in this deck. You'll get an email when the on-demand recording is ready for viewing. If you want to sponsor an event with us, you can reach out to Nancy Wilcox from our team and you can go to our website to register for upcoming panels. With that, I want to thank our tremendous panel, Dr. Zafar Chowdhury, Dr. John Halamka, Mark Mangus, and our sponsors, Red Hat and Karasoft. And I want to thank you, our attendees, for joining. But with that, everybody have a wonderful day. Thank you. Thanks so much. Thank you.